Welcome to Fast Asleep. Whether you're here to embark on a wonderful night's sleep or just to listen to a wonderful story, it's so nice to have you with us. Another female author for us today, Pulitzer Prize winning Edith Wharton. Now an American couple arrive in England wanting a house, but only if it's haunted. Miss Wharton's tale will span three of our episodes, so let's tuck in and begin the first. And let's learn why. It's called Afterward. Oh, there is one, but of course you'll never know it. The assertion laughingly flung out six months earlier in a bright June garden came back to Mary Boyne with a sharp perception of its latent significance as she stood in the December dusk, waiting for the lamps to be brought into the library. The words had been spoken by their friend, Alida Stare, as they sat at tea on her lawn at Pangbourne, in reference to the very house of which the library in question was the central, the pivotal, feature. Mary Boyne and her husband, in quest of a country place in one of the southern or southwestern counties, had, on their arrival in England, carried their problem straight to Alida Stair, who had successfully solved it in her own case. But it was not until they had rejected almost capriciously several practical and judicious suggestions that she threw it out. Well, there's Ling in Dorsetshire. It belongs to Hugo's cousins, and you can get it for a song. The reasons she gave for its being ob obtainable on these terms, well, its remoteness from a station, its lack of electric light, hot water pipes, and other oh, vulgar necessities, were exactly those pleading in its favor with two romantic Americans perversely in search of the economic drawbacks which were associated in their tradition with unusual architectural felicities. I should never believe I was living in an old house unless I was thoroughly uncomfortable, Ned Boyne, the most extravagant of the two, had jocosely insisted. The least hint of convenience? Wow, that would make me think it had been bought out of an exhibition with the pieces numbered and set up again. And they had proceeded to enumerate with humorous precision their various suspicions and exactions, refusing to believe that the house their cousin recommended was really Tudor till they learned it had no heating system, or that the village church was literally in the grounds, till she assured them of the deplorable uncertainty of the water supply. Oh, oh it's too uncomfortable to be true, Edward Boyne had continued to exult, as the avowal of each disadvantage was successfully wrung from her. But he had cut short his rhapsody to ask, 
with a sudden relapse to distrust. And the ghost, you've been concealing from us the fact that there is no ghost. Mary, at that moment, had laughed with him, yet almost with her laugh, being possessed of several sets of independent perceptions, had noted a sudden flatness of tone in Alida's answering hilarity. Oh, Dorsetshire's full of ghosts, you know. Yes, yes. Mm. That won't do. I don't want to have to drive 10 miles to see somebody else's ghost. I want one of my own on the premises. Is there a ghost at Ling? His rejoinder had made Alita laugh again. And it was then that she had flung back tantalizingly. Oh, there is one, of course, but you'll never know it. Never know it, Boyne pulled up. But what in the world constitutes a ghost except the fact of its being known for one? Well, I can't say, but that's the story. That there's a ghost, but that nobody knows it's a ghost? Well, not till afterward, at any rate. Till afterward? Not till long, long afterward. But if it's once been identified as an unearthly visitant, why hasn't it signalement, description of one's appearance, been handed down in the family? How has it managed to preserve its incognito? Alita could only shake her head. Don't ask me, but it has. And then suddenly Mary spoke up as if from some cavernous depth of divination. Suddenly, long afterward, one says to oneself, that was it? She was oddly startled at the sulpical sound with which her question fell on the banter of the other two. And she saw the shadow of the same surprise flit across Alita's clear pupils. I, I suppose so. One just has to wait. Oh, hang waiting, Ned broke in. Life's too short for a ghost who can only be enjoyed in retrospect. Can't we do better than that, Mary? But it turned out, in the event they were not destined to, for within three months of their conversation with Mrs. Stair, they were established at Ling, and the life they had yearned for to the point of planning it out in all its daily details had actually begun for them. And it was to sit in the thick December dusk by just such a wide hooded fireplace under just such black oak rafters with the sense that beyond the mullioned panes, the downs were darkening to a deeper solitude. It was for the ultimate indulgence in such sensations that Mary Boyne had endured for nearly 14 years the soul-deadening ugliness of the Middle West, and that Mr. Boyne had ground on doggedly at his engineering till with a suddenness that still made her blink, 
the prodigious windfall of the Blue Star Mine. It had put them at a stroke in possession of life and the leisure to taste it. They had never for a moment meant their new state, though, to be one of idleness, but they meant to give themselves only to harmonious activities. She had her vision of painting and gardening against a background of gray walls. He dreamed of the production of his long-planned book on the economic basis of culture. And with such absorbing work ahead, no existence could be too sequestered. They could not get far enough from the world or plunge deep enough into the past. Dorsetshire had attracted them from the first by a semblance of remoteness out of all proportion to its geographical position. To the Boynes, it was one of the ever-recurring wonders of the whole incredibly compressed island, the nest of counties, as they put it, that for the production of its effects, so little of a given quality went so far that so few miles made a distance and so short a distance a difference. It's that, Ned had once enthusiastically explained, that gives such depth to their effects, such relief to their least contrasts. They've been able to lay the butter so thick on every exquisite mouthful. Hmm, the butter had certainly been laid on thick at Ling. The old gray house, hidden under a shoulder of the downs, had almost all the finer marks of commerce with a protracted past. The mere fact that it was neither large nor exceptionally made, to the Boynes abound the more richly in its special sense, the sense of having been for centuries a deep, dim reservoir of life. The life had probably not been the most vivid order. For long periods, no doubt, it had fallen as noiselessly into the past as the quiet drizzle of autumn fell, hour after hour, into the green fish pond between the yews. But these backwaters of existence sometimes breed in their sluggish depths, strange acuities of emotion. And Mary Boyne had felt, from the first, the occasional brush of an intenser memory. The feeling had never been stronger than on the December afternoon when waiting in the library for the belated lamps she rose from her seat and stood among the shadows of the hearth. Her husband had gone off after luncheon for one of his unaccompanied long tramps on the downs. She had noticed of late that he preferred to be unaccompanied on these occasions, and in the tried security of their personal relations had been driven to conclude that his book was bothering him and that he needed 
needed the afternoons to turn over in solitude the problems left from the morning's work. Certainly the book was not going as smoothly as she had imagined it would, and the lines of perplexity between his eyes had never been there in his engineering days. Then he had often looked tired to the verge of illness, but the native demon of worry had never branded his brow. Yet the few pages he had so far read to her, the introduction and a synopsis of the opening chapter, gave evidences of a firm possession of his subject and a deepening confidence in his powers. The fact threw her into deeper perplexity since now that he had done with business and its disturbing contingencies, the only other possible element of anxiety was eliminated. Unless it were his health. But physically, he had gained since they had come to Dorset, Dorsetshire, grown robuster, ruddier, and fresher-eyed. It was only within a week that she had felt in him the undefinable change that made her restless in his absence. And as tongue-tied in his presence, as though it were she who had a secret to keep from him. The thought that there was a secret somewhere between them struck her with a sudden smart rap of wonder, and she looked about her down the dim, long room. Can it be the house? she mused. The room itself might have been full of secrets. They seemed to be piling themselves up as evening fell, like the layers and layers of velvet shadow dropping from the low ceiling, the dusky walls of books, the smoke-blurred sculpture of the hooded hearth. Why, of course, the house is haunted, she reflected. The ghost, Alita's imperceptible ghost, after figuring largely in the banter of their first month or two at Ling, had been gradually discarded as too ineffectual for imaginative use. Mary had indeed, as became the tenant of a haunted house, made the customary inquiries among her few rural neighbors. But beyond a vague, eh, they do say so, ma'am, the villagers had nothing to impart. The elusive specter had apparently never had sufficient identity for a legend to crystallize about it. And after a time, the Boynes had laughingly set the matter down to their profit and loss account, agreeing that Ling was one of the few houses good enough in itself to dispense with supernatural enhancements. Hmm, and I suppose poor ineffectual demon. That's why it beat its beautiful wings in vain in the void, Mary had laughingly concluded. Or rather, Ned answered in the same strain, why amid so much that's ghostly, it can never affirm its separate existence as the ghost. And thereupon their invisible housemate had finally 
dropped out of their references, which were numerous enough to make them promptly unaware of the loss. But now, as she stood on the hearth, the subject of their earlier curiosity revived in her with a new sense of its meaning, a sense gradually acquired through close daily contact with the scene of the lurking mystery. It was the house itself, of course, that was that possessed the ghost-seeing faculty that communed visually but secretly with its own past. And if one could only get into the close enough communion with the house, one might surprise its secret and acquire the ghost sight on one's own account. Perhaps in his long solitary hours in this very room where Mary never trespassed till the afternoon, her husband had acquired it already oh, and was silently carrying the dread weight of whatever it had revealed to him. Mary was too well versed in the code of the spectral world not to know that one could not talk about the ghosts one saw. Why, to do so was almost as great a breach of good breeding as, well, to name a lady in a club. But this explanation did not really satisfy her. What, after all, except for the fun of the frizzin, a sudden excitement, she reflected, would he really care if any of their old ghosts? And thence she was thrown back once more on the fundamental dilemma, the fact that one's greater or less susceptibility to spectral influences had no particular bearing on the case, since when one did see a ghost at Ling, oh yes, one did not know it. Not till long afterward, Alita Stare had said. Mm. Well, supposing Ned had seen one when they first came and had known only within the last week what had happened to him. More and more under the spell of the hour, she threw back her searching thoughts to the early days of their tenancy but at first only to recall a gay confusion of unpacking, settling, arranging of books, and calling to each other from remote corners of the house as treasure after treasure of their habitation revealed itself to them. It was in this particular connection that she presently recalled a certain soft afternoon of the previous October when passing from the first rapturous flurry of exploration to a detailed inspection of the old house, she had pressed, like a novel heroine, a panel that opened at her touch on a narrow flight of stairs, leading to an unsuspected flat ledge of the roof, the roof which from below seemed to slope away on all sides too abruptly for any but practiced feet to scale. The view from this hidden coin, a projecting corner, was enchanting, and she had flown down to snatch Ned from his papers 
and give him the freedom of her discovery. She remembered still how, standing on the narrow ledge, he had passed his arm about her while their gaze flew to the long, tossed horizon line of the downs, and then dropped contentedly back to trace the arabesque of yew hedges about the fish pond and the shadow of the cedar on the lawn. And now, the other way, he had said, gently turning her about within his arm, and closely pressed to him, she had absorbed, like some long, satisfying draught, the picture of the gray-walled court, the squat lions on the gates, and the lime avenue reaching up to the high road under the downs. It was just then, while they gazed and held each other, that she had felt his arm relax and heard a sharp, hello, that made her turn to glance at him. Distinctly, yes, she now recalled that she had seen, as she glanced, a shadow of anxiety, of perplexity, rather, fall across his face, and following his eyes, had beheld the figure of a man, a man in loose, grayish clothes, as it appeared to her, who was sauntering down the Lime Avenue to the court with the tentative gait of a stranger seeking his way. Her short-sighted eyes had given her but a blurred impression of slightness and grayness with something foreign or at least unlocal in the cut of the figure or its garb. But her husband had apparently seen more, seen enough to make him push past her with a sharp weight and dash down the twisting stairs without pausing to give her a hand for the descent. A slight tendency to dizziness obliged her. After a provisional clutch at the chimney against which they had been leaning, to follow him down more cautiously. And when she had reached the attic landing, she paused again for a less definite reason, leaning over the oak banister to strain her eyes through the silence of the brown, sun-flecked depths below. She lingered there till somewhere in those depths she heard the closing of a door. Then, mechanically impelled, she went down the shallow flights of steps till she reached the lower hall. Hmm. The front door stood open on the mild sunlight of the court, and hall and court were empty. The library door was open, too, and after listening in vain for any sound of voices within, she quickly crossed to the threshold and found her husband, alone, vaguely fingering the papers on his desk. He looked up, as if surprised to see her precipitate entrance, but the shadow of anxiety had passed from his face, leaving it even, as she fancied, perhaps a little brighter and clearer than usual. What was it? Who was it? she asked. Who? he repeated with the surprise still on his side. Well, the man we saw coming toward the house. He seemed honestly to reflect. The man? 
Oh, why, I thought I saw Peters. I dashed after him to say a word about the stable drains, but he disappeared before I could get down. Disappeared? Why, he seemed to be walking so slowly when we saw him. Boyne shrugged his shoulders. So I thought. But he must have got up steam in the interval. What do you say to our trying a scramble up Meldon Steep before sunset? And that was all. At the time, the occurrence had been less than nothing, had indeed been immediately obliterated by the magic of their first vision from Meldon Steep, a height which they had dreamed of climbing ever since they had first seen its bare spine heaving itself above the low roof of Ling. Doubtless, it was the mere fact of the other incidents having occurred on the very day of their ascent to Meldon that had kept it stored away in the unconscious fold of association from which it now emerged. For in itself, it had no mark of the portentous. At the moment, there could have been nothing more natural than that Ned should dash himself from the roof in the pursuit of a dilatory tradesman. It was the period when they were always on the watch for one or the other of the specialists employed about the place, always lying in wait for them and dashing out at them with questions, reproaches, or reminders. And certainly in the distance, the gray figure had looked like Peter's. Yet now, as she reviewed the rapid scene, she felt her husband's explanation of it to have been invalidated by the look of anxiety on his face. Why had the familiar appearance of Peter's made him anxious? Why, above all, if it was of such prime necessity to confer with that authority on the subject of the stable drains, had the failure to find him produced such a look of relief? Mary could not say that any one of these considerations had occurred to her at the time, yet from the promptness with which they now marshaled themselves at her summons, she had a sudden sense that they must all along have been there, waiting their hour. Weary with her thoughts, she moved toward the window. The library was now completely dark, and she was surprised to see how much faint light the outer world still held. As she peered out into it across the court, oh, a figure shaped itself in the tapering perspective of bare lines. It looked a mere blot of deeper gray in the grayness, and for an instant, as it moved toward her, her heart thumped to the thought, oh, it's the ghost. She had time in that long instant to feel suddenly that the man of whom, two months earlier, she had a brief distant vision from the roof was now, at his predestined hour, about to reveal himself as not having been Peter's. And her spirit sank under the impending fear of this disclosure. Almost with the next tick of the clock, the ambiguous figure, gaining substance and character, showed itself, even to her weak sight, as 
her husband's, and she turned away to meet him as he entered with the confession of her folly. Oh, it's really too absurd, she laughed out from the threshold, but I never can remember. Remember what? Boyne questioned as they drew together. That when one sees the Ling ghost, one never knows it. Her hand was on his sleeve, and he kept it there, but with no response in his gesture or in the lines of his tired, preoccupied face. Did you think you'd seen it? He asked, after an appreciable interval. Why, I actually took you for it, my dear, in my mad determination to spot it. Me, just now, his arm dropped away, and he turned from her with a faint echo of her laugh. Really, dearest, you'd better give it up if that's the best you can do. Yes, I give it up. I give it up. Uh, have you? She asked, turning round on him abruptly. The parlor maid had entered with letters and a lamp, and the light struck up into Boyne's face as he bent above the tray she presented. Have you? Mary perversely insisted when the servant had disappeared on her errand of illumination. Have I what? He rejoined absently, the light bringing out the sharp stamp of worry between his brows as he turned over the letters. Given up, trying to see the ghost. Her heart beat a little at the experiment she was making. Her husband, laying his letters aside, moved away into the shadow of the hearth. I never tried, he said, tearing open the wrapper of a newspaper. Well, of course, Mary persisted. The exasperating thing is that there's no use trying, since one can't be sure till long afterward. He was unfolding the paper as if he'd hardly heard her, but after a pause, during which the sheets rustled spasmodically between his hands, he lifted his head to say abruptly, Have you any idea how long? Hmm. Well, Mary had sunk low into a chair beside the fireplace. From her seat, she looked up, startled at her husband's profile, which was darkly projected against the circle of lamplight. No, none. Have you? She retorted, repeating her former phrase with an added keenness of intention. Boyne crumpled the paper into a bunch and then inconsequently turned back with it toward the lamp. Lord, no, I only meant, he explained with a faint tinge of impatience. Is there any legend, any tradition as to that? Oh, well, not that I know of, she answered. But there was an impulse to add, what makes you ask? It was checked by the reappearance of the parlor made with tea and a second lamp. With the dispersal of shadows and the repetition of the daily domestic office, Mary Boyne felt herself less oppressed by that sense of something mutely imminent which had darkened her solitary afternoon. For a few moments, she gave herself silently to the details of her task, and when she looked up from it, she was struck to the point of bewilderment by the change in her husband's face. He had seated himself near the farther lamp and was absorbed in the perusal of his letters, but 
Was it something he had found in them? Or merely the shifting of her own point of view that had restored his features to their normal aspect? The longer she looked, the more definitely the change affirmed itself. The lines of painful tension had vanished and such traces of fatigue as lingered were of the kind easily attributable to steady mental effort. He glanced up as if drawn by her gaze and met her eyes with a smile. I'm dying for my tea, you know. Oh, and here's a letter for you, he said. Well, she took the letter he held out in exchange for the cup she proffered him and returning to her seat broke the seal with the languid gesture of the reader whose interests are all enclosed in the circle of one cherished presence. Her next conscious motion was that of starting to her feet, the letter falling to them as she rose, while she held out to her husband a long newspaper clipping. Ned, what's this? What does it mean? He had risen at the same instant, almost as if hearing her cry before she uttered it. And for a perceptible space of time, he and she studied each other like adversaries, watching for an advantage across the space between her chair and his desk. What's what? Why, you fairly made me jump, Boyne said at length moving toward her with a sudden, half-exasperated laugh. The shadow of apprehension was on his face again. Not now a look of fixed foreboding, but a shifting vigilance of lips and eyes that gave her the sense of his feeling invisibly surrounded. Her hand shook so that she could hardly give him the clipping. Why, this article from the Waukesha Sentinel that a man named Elwell has brought suit against you, that there was something wrong about the Blue Star Mine. Why, I can't understand more than half. They continued to face each other as she spoke, and to her astonishment, she saw that her words had the almost immediate effect of dissipating the strained watchfulness of his look. Oh, that! He glanced down the printed slip and then folded it with the gesture of one who handles something harmless and familiar. What's the matter with you this afternoon, Mary? I thought you'd got bad news. She stood before him with her undefinable terror subsiding slowly under the reassuring touch of his composure. You knew about this then? It's all right? Oh, certainly I knew about it and it's all right. But what is it? I don't understand. How does this man accuse you? Oh, he accuses me pretty nearly every crime in the calendar. Boyne, had tossed the clipping down and thrown himself comfortably into an armchair near the fire. Do you want to hear the story? It's not particularly interesting. Just a squabble over interests in the blue star. 
But who is this Elwell? I don't know the name. Oh, he's a fellow I put into it. I gave him a hand up. I told you all about him at the time. Oh, I dare say I, I must have forgotten. Vainly, she strained back among her memories. But if you've helped him, why does he make this return? Mm, probably some shyster lawyer got a hold of him and talked him over. It's all rather technical and complicated. I thought that kind of thing bored you. His wife felt a sting of compunction. Theoretically, she deprecated the American wife's detachment from her husband's professional interests. But in practice, she had always found it difficult to fix her attention on Boyne's report of the transactions in which his varied interests involved him. Besides, she had felt from the first that in a community where the amenities of living could be obtained only at the cost of efforts as arduous as her husband's professional labors, such brief leisure as they could command should be used as an escape from immediate preoccupations, a flight to the life they always dreamed of living. Once or twice, now that this new life had actually drawn its magic circle about them, she had asked herself if she had done right, but hitherto such conjectures had been no more than the retrospective excursions of an active fancy. Now, for the first time, it startled her a little to find how little she knew of the material foundation on which her happiness was built. She glanced again at her husband and was reassured by the composure of his face. Yet, she felt the need of more definite grounds for her reassurance. But doesn't this suit worry you? Why have you never spoken to me about it? He answered both questions at once. I didn't speak of it at first because, well, it did worry me. Annoyed me, rather. But it's all ancient history now. Your correspondent must have got hold of a back number of the Sentinel. Oh, she felt a quick thrill of relief. Oh, you mean it's over? He's lost his case? There was a just perceptible delay in Boyne's reply. The suit's been withdrawn, that's all. But she persisted, as if to exonerate herself from the inward charge of being too easily put off. Withdrawn because he saw he had no chance? Oh, he had no chance, Boyne answered. She was still struggling with a dimly felt perplexity at the back of her thoughts. How long ago was it withdrawn? He paused, as if with a slight return of his former uncertainty. I've just had the news now, but I've been expecting it. Well, just now in one of your letters. Yes in one of my letters. She made no answer and was aware only after a short interval of waiting that he had risen and strolling across the room had placed himself on the sofa at her side. She felt him as he did so pass an arm about her 
she felt his hand seek hers and clasp it, and turning slowly, drawn by the warmth of his cheek, she met the smiling clearness of his eyes. It's all right? It's all right? She questioned through the flood of her dissolving doubts. And I give you my word, it never was righter. He laughed back at her, holding her close. It never was righter. Or was it? Come back soon for more of his story. Good night.